You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Thou shalt not murder, or in the ESV, you shall not murder. Sometimes we read, you shall not kill, or thou shalt not kill. I've been thinking about this day for a while, sanctity of human life. Always like to approach things a little bit different, even though we're kind of talking about the same subject, the value of human life, and specifically the issue of abortion. I've had ideas in the last few months on how to handle this, but kept uh, deciding against them, and I started to think about what is the clearest passage in the Bible that speaks of the, the sanctity of human life? What is the clearest text? Well, there's Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where we read that God breathed the breath of life into man, and he became a living being. Pretty clear. God gave life. Therefore, we should value it. Genesis 1, 27, we read that God created human beings in his own image. So not only did God create us, but he fashioned us in his own image. It seems to be even clearer about this statement that every life is of great value and dignity. Then there are other texts, like uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 25, where we read that God gave all people life and breath and all things. Once again, we gather from this that every life is to be valued if God has given it. One of my favorite passages is Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and 26, where Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look to the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? We are not just highly evolved animals, according to Jesus. We are worth In his words, much more. Jeremiah 22 verse 3 says, this says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Also, do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place. I mean, you catch the force of it, right? Do not shed innocent blood in this place. And if we keep reading, the Lord says to the king that if they fail to do this, that he will make them a desolation. In other words, he will take and wipe you out if you fall short in this. Certainly, the sanctity of human life is established In the Bible, in Genesis, as we've already pointed out, God breathed into Adam. He became a a living being. God created him in his own image. But, But think about 
One more Genesis text. Chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in, his, for in the image of God he made, he made man. This is the text that many uh, appeal to as they support capital punishment. And I would say uh, rightly so. But many miss something here. And that is that the ground for capital punishment is the sanctity or value of human life. To value human life is so important. It is to make sure that if one takes a life created in the image of God, it is punished. And there are cases in which that person forfeits their own life. It is that important, that serious. Of course, the value of human life is established in the very beginning of the Bible. We see it throughout Scripture. Uh, But I think maybe, and this is debatable, but I think maybe that the clearest place that it's set forth in Scripture is in the Sixth Commandment. In the Hebrew, it's equivalent to two words. Never murder. The King James translates it, thou shalt not kill. The wording there has continually, throughout the time that the King James uh, was written, was uh, continually found deficient. At the time of the translation, the word there, killed, included uh, the sense of murder more than it does today. I, I don't know about you, but when I was a child, and we talked about this command, and we said, thou shalt not kill, We understood, yes, it means murder another person, but it was a little unclear. Does it mean more? Are we to not kill anything? The fact is, the Hebrew word that is used here, that is translated, kill or murder, is not unclear. And it means simply to put to death improperly. To put to death for selfish reasons, without authorization. When I say authorization, I mean like in a war or the government administering justice. Certainly there was killing in the Old Testament. Several commands of God himself carried the the penalty of death if they were disobeyed. After all, this was a, a theocratic community and there were some that were delegated that the right to take life if it came to that. There were holy wars in the Old Testament where God specifically told Israel to kill others. The point here, though, is that no Israelite, and this is clear in the text, that no Israelite could act on their own to decide to end the life of another. It was God's right. And there isn't much of a difference between the force of the command as it was given in Exodus chapter 20 and as it was repeated in Deuteronomy 5.17, The force of the command is the same today. There's the role of the government. I'm not going to get into this a lot now, but I will just say this, that the purpose of the government is to administer justice. And sometimes justice means taking the life of another. The government has a role, and we do not get to decide on our own, apart from the the government, the God-ordained places, if another person deserves to die or not for their crimes or whatever we've perceived and the wrong that they have done. Any other reason one might have to take a life, we don't get to decide that. We should also note here that when it comes to this command, 
as the command not to murder, it doesn't have qualifications or all of these different nuances. For instance, one might ask, well, if, what about taking the life in a case of mercy, for instance? Does that qualify as an exception? Is that not murder then? It doesn't. We don't go around deciding to kill people as acts of mercy. Certainly killing in the name of mercy happens, but by and large, we as human beings are to preserve life, to preserve the quality of it. As I was thinking about the sixth commandment, I was thinking about the reasons that people have to take another life. So, under the risk of getting flagged by Big Brother, I went and I googled this. Uh, And I don't think this is going to surprise you, but the reasons that people have to take another life are, and this isn't in exact order, and they all kind of come together a little bit, but greed is a big motivation for murder. When it it comes to a a spouse killing another spouse, there's there's often a greed aspect, life insurance or inheritance. In the case of family members, it could be inheritance. Business partners, financial gain. You, you see this. Greed is a big motivator. One place said that about one-fourth of all serial murders are done for money. I found that rather interesting. Another reason that people have for murder is humiliation. People were fired from a job or ridiculed or shamed in some aspect. We've seen these kinds of cases a lot in recent history, right? School shootings often involve those who have been humiliated. Another reason is betrayal or cheating. When a spouse believes the other is cheating, sometimes the the betrayed spouse resorts to murder. They do it themselves or they even maybe hire somebody. Perhaps there's a disagreement between business partners, a a land dispute where one person thinks they were cheated of that. I mean, there's cases, right? You can probably think of instances where these things have happened. Uh, Another reason for murder is the pursuit of power. Why people resort to murder? Power. Of course, Again, all of these things overlap to some degree, but there is a sense in which most of the time, murder is to take the power back that one didn't have before. And as I was thinking about all of these things, I had to wonder, where does abortion fit in on all of this? You know, why do, why do women have abortions? Why is that an option? What, what reasons do they give? I think I thought I knew the answer, but I looked into it for a while. And when it comes to this question from a a pro-life position, we usually think about this question in terms of the child, right? Questions like, what is this child? Is this a human? Is it murder? Right? Those are the questions that the pro-life mind goes to. In other words, the the, the person, we're focused on the, the nine months in the womb, and rightly so, in a sense, right? That's when the child's life is taken by abortion. The, you know, but one needs to be concerned about that time. But what is interesting, though, is that those who are uh, planning on having an abortion, those who are considering an abortion, are looking further in time, and they focus on the challenges of the first 18 years. 
Those things that, that parents are responsible for, like providing the basics, food, shelter, and clothing. That that's a foreseeable hardship for some. By the way, I'm not making excuses. I'm not giving license in any way, shape, or form to consider abortion as an option. What I'm doing is helping us understand why it is that people would do this. But, but let's call a spade a spade, right? Abortion is taking the life of another in a way that is clearly forbidden in the Sixth Commandment. Something that is very clear, just as we have touched the surface of the command. But let me give you the, the most common reasons for the abortion decision. Now, I got these from, from Tim Hawks. I, I don't really know him, um, but CareNet is a reputable organization, and they use his statistics here. 74% of those who opt for an abortion say that the child would interfere with school, employment, or the ability to care for dependents. Three quarters. You see how they're looking down the line of time? 73% say that they couldn't afford a child now. They were too expensive. Another reason that one opts for an abortion is does, one does not want to become a single parent, or they're having relationship problems and think it's unfair to bring a child into the world in that situation. That amounts to half the people. Half the people who get an abortion are thinking about their current relationship status and believe it's unfair to bring a child into a dysfunctional situation. Right? Many relationships aren't secure. The mom-to-be isn't certain about the future of the relationship. Father isn't in the picture or she doesn't want him to be in the picture for one reason or another. A lot of that gives a lot of that give this reason to say that it they, they would say that it's not right to raise a child in that situation. A third of people say that they're not ready to have a child or another child. I think you see what I mean. When I say that those who are opting for or considering abortion aren't thinking of the child in utero. And the the question of what it is or what's growing inside her isn't the first concern. These are thinking about later on raising and affording the child. The impact that that whole situation is going to have on their life. And, and, And I would say that if we're honest, there's a lot of us that can really sympathize We can look at what one is going through. We can hear their story. We can see their perspective. And we can be sensitive to that. And in some circumstances, we can even grieve in a sense with them. We can say that that fears about the future are legitimate. And that there are a lot of questions that, that come up in an unplanned pregnancy that are unanswered. Unanswerable. Questions that we're just, we can't answer. Like, like how we can afford another child. How are we going to do it? I don't know. What if my partner leaves me because I tell them that I'm going to have a child? The fact is, they might. Don't know how they're going to react. But just because we can sympathize and put ourselves in the shoes of another and feel for them, Just because one's fears are legitimate does not undergird what the Bible says to be true. 
And it's at this point that we need to look back and look back to the sixth commandment and, and really the commandments in general. Just think of the, the Ten Commandments or what we've called the, the Decalogue, the Ten Words, and ask the question, why are they so important? Why have they been plastered all over the place? Not so much anymore, but in courthouses, in schools, in, in homes. The reason is that we understood that the, we understand that these are God's moral law. And the God's moral law exists in two tablets, two tables. We call them. The first table tells us to love God rightly. Right? The first set of commandments says this is how you are to love God. And the second table is to love your neighbor as yourself. Ten commandments summarized in two tables. And these laws are so important because they come from the very character of God. And it is the law here that it is in this law that we learn something of the God that commands these things. And in the case of the sixth commandment, we learn something of God's attitude regarding life. And that there is a way of taking life that is inconsistent with the character of God. When one hears pro-life, that phrase We shouldn't think first Republican. We shouldn't think first politics. We should think first God. It is God who is the paradigm of valuing life because that law stems from who he is. He is 100% consistent in being pro-life. Now the sixth command, and I think this is extremely important, the sixth command, some think, is, is, is different than the rest, right? It's on a different level. The the other commands, a lot of the other commands are difficult to keep. For instance, one lies before they even realize what they're doing. There are times in which lies just uh, slip out and it's too late to to take it back and then we're trapped. When it comes to stealing, uh, we've all taken something that isn't ours no matter matter the value. We've wanted what others have as coveting. Who hasn't disobeyed their parents? This is what the moral law does. The moral law shows our inability to keep it. So look at the command not to murder and the command not to commit adultery. And here, these are are two commands that some will look at and they will say, well, there's a little hope for me as it were. I have failed in regard to most things, although I'm, I'm pretty good now, I'm getting better. You know, the, on the moral scale, I'm getting better. I'm, I'm not arrived yet, but on most things, I'm getting better. But here are some things that I can point to that I have not broken. At least I'm good in these areas, we might say. And there's reason for us to boast a little, right? Here's things that, here's, here's places where I've kept them. I value life, I don't murder, I haven't committed adultery. Here's the problem with that kind of thinking. Let's just turn to 1 Corinthians for a moment, if you would. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll start in verse 26 to give us some context. I'll tell you where I'm going. Verse 29, if you want to see the the force. For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Let me just stop there. Consider your calling. What is your calling? Well, Paul tells them that. If you back up to verse 18, it is proclaiming the word of the cross to those who are perishing. And that word, right, the word of the cross to them is folly to them. Because, but it is the power of God for salvation to us. Paul goes on. God chose you to proclaim his message. You, he's speaking to the church He's talking to people in the pew, as it were, like I'm talking to you. Paul's talking to that church. God chose you to make that message known. Get this. You who are weak, that's what he calls you, weak. He calls you low. He calls you despised. And he calls you foolish. And God chose you in his purpose. To make this known. So what? That no human being might boast in the presence of God. You have no reason to boast. None. Nada. Right? No human. No boasting. Not you the proclaimer of the word of the cross. For you are low, you are weak, you are foolish. Just as the people that you are proclaiming this message to are. And the hope here is that these that you share this message with will be what? Shamed. Meaning that they will see their lowness. They will see their weakness. They will see their foolishness. And they will recognize that their need, their hope, isn't in themselves. Their hope isn't in boasting. It is in Christ alone. So that no human being may boast. Get this brothers and sisters. That you have no reason to boast in the presence of God. Well keep reading Paul. Nuances this a little bit. I'll just pick up in verse 30. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom of God. Let me just stop there for a second. Remember you were called foolish you had no reason to be to boast right but it is in him because of God that you are in Christ who is the wisdom of God think about what he is saying here you are wise only in that you are in Christ you foolish one are united with true perfect wisdom I'll keep going Who came to us wisdom from God. Righteousness. Not only are you united with perfect true wisdom. But you're united with perfect true righteousness. You're sanctified. God is in this process of making you more holy. He's working in you. He's doing this. He's redeemed you. He's bought you out of the, the slave market of sin. You are his own. You've been redeemed. 
You don't buy yourself off the slave market of sin, by the way. He does that. So that as it is written, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. What do you have to boast about? Nothing. Except what Christ has done. So because of your union with Christ, you are righteous. God is at work in you, making you more holy. That is sanctification. You are redeemed. These things are the things that God has done. You are weak. It is in Christ that you are strong. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we we see this. Paul says that he, he pleaded with the Lord three times to take his thorn and the flesh away. But Christ said... My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. It was Paul's physical infirmity that in Paul's eyes made him weak. It hindered him. I could accomplish so much more if I didn't have this thorn. That's Paul's mind, right? That's all of our mind. It had hindered him, but the Lord used that. It was, in fact, God's power was displayed in his weakness. So what does Paul boast in? The power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the boast is only what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Now here's my my point, and please don't miss it, that there is no reason for you and I to boast about anything relating to our own personal holiness. And that includes the sixth command. That's verse 29. No boasting by no human. You might say, well, what about the sixth commandment, right? I don't murder. I haven't killed anyone. So let's think about it this way. If we haven't broken this command, then we have reason to boast. But Paul has just said, no human has no reason to boast. And there's something else here that we must understand, and that is that in Adam, we are all lawbreakers. Adam was a a human representative. This is why James can say this. He says, and I'll start in uh, James chapter 2, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing that well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. James has a simple point. There is no reason, there is no need to boast about one's allegiance to the law in one point because our failure in any other point proves us guilty deserving of God's wrath. You're guilty in one point. You're guilty of it all. So in Adam, we're all law breakers. We're guilty of all of it. This is why the psalmist can say that he was a sinner from the point of conception. In Adam, we are all sinners. The testimony of this is clear. We all sin. There's no room to boast. I actually, though, think that James is being a bit hyperbolic here. He's using some some gross exaggeration to make a point. I would say he's not actually saying that it's possible to be faithful in nine areas and only break one. Or to be faithful in uh, one area and break nine. 
He's saying that if one were to be guilty of one area, it would be as if they were guilty of them all. Did you see the point? The point that he's making? He's just making a point. We're all transgressors. We all deserve. You get no attaboys for keeping one. When Paul says in Romans 3 that we're all sinners and that there is none righteous. And then he goes on to say, no, not one. He means in all aspects. Jesus makes this point perfectly clear in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. When he tells the listener that the the moral law of God applies not only to outward action, but also to inward thoughts and desires of the heart. According to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 verse 28, one doesn't have to commit adultery to break the command. Just looking at another person with lust in their heart is a violation of the command because adultery actually takes place in the heart long before it's acted upon. I guarantee that the one who commits adultery, that the act didn't happen in a vacuum. There was heart stuff going on long before that, right? The the lust of the flesh was happening whether they actually acted upon it or not. The same is true with murder. In the same chapter, Jesus brings up the sixth command and says that one doesn't actually have to kill somebody to violate the command. But anger in one's heart is the root of murder. And it's a violation of the command. And the reason for this is that God cares about the condition of one's heart, not only the outward actions of them. So let me ask you this question. What does all of this have to do with abortion? And the the answer to that is a lot, actually. But let me just give you three things. First, all of this tells us that we are very good at justifying sinful things in our own minds. We are good at justifying our feelings toward others. We are good at... Uh, justifying our lust toward others, our desires for their other, for the things that they have. And if we're honest, we think we are better than we actually are. We're all guilty before God, and this is very clear. And as we saw at the start, that those who opt for abortion have reasons for it, reasons that we can sympathize with. But we have reasons for a lot of things that we do that place us in violation of God's law. We might have good reasons in our own mind to hold ill will toward another person, to refuse to forgive them. We might have good reasons to take something that isn't ours. We might think it's because we are owed that for one reason or another. The way people justify sin boggles the mind. But yet, we are all very good at justifying our sin. In fact, we are so good at justifying our own sin to such a degree that in our minds, we do not even think of these things as sin. These things just become commonplace. There are countless examples here when it comes to the the first commandment. We don't believe that there are things in our life that are, that are that important, that could take the place of God, that have displaced God as the rightful ruler sitting on the throne of our lives. And we don't even, we don't even see those things when they come along. You see, a discussion, a serious discussion of the sixth command says that we're, we're good at justifying things. 
Abortion is not the only thing that is justified when it comes to the sixth commandment. We justify our hatred. We justify our ill will. Second, this discussion helps us see very clear that abortion is murder. It is clearly a violation of the sixth commandment. Abortion is taking a life that we do not have the right to take. The the reasons some have for abortion don't permit it. We can apply some of the same logic to other situations. What if a, a child was older and it still impacts our work? We don't, have a, um, we don't have a problem. You know, we have a problem because we have to be at home taking care of a, a child. And it impacts our, our livelihood. It impacts our work. Do we have a right to kill a nine-year-old? What if the child costs too much? Can we kill them when they're 10? I mean, it's ridiculous to think that way. So why is it all right to think that way about a child in the womb? Some will say that the mother has the right over her body, and since this child is within her, it gives her that right. But we learn from Scripture that God is the one fashioning that child, knitting that child together in the womb. And if God is doing that, what right does anyone have to take and harm that child? We've seen in Genesis that God gives life. And if God gives it, and that life is fashioned in his own image, we can't take it. We do not have that right. You see, location and development of the child doesn't matter. Now there's something else here, and this is a little bit controversial when it comes to the pro-life movement as we know it today, but it's important, I think, to bring up here. And that is that there are many within the pro-life group, and this is for political purposes, that they will say that when it comes to pro-life legislation and when it comes to abortion, it must be the doctors that are held accountable. In other words, the laws on the books should seek to punish those who provide abortion, not the women who go and get them. They say that women are the victims. And I understand why this logic is appealing and why it'll get laws passed, but it isn't biblical. If one pays somebody to kill their spouse that person is guilty of murder just as if it was that person that pulled the trigger. In our legislation, we have no trouble with that, but a woman entering an abortion facility and ending the life of a child is guilty of murder, full stop. God's law is not ambiguous. The command is not nuanced, as we pointed out earlier. A single person does not have the right to end one's life. The Westminster Larger Catechism is so good here. I'm not going to take time to to read it all. I would would challenge you to to go to it and look at it. But question question 134 is this. What is the sixth commandment? Do not murder. Question number 135 is what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? Part of the answer is to preserve the life of ourselves and others and to resist Thought and purpose that lead to the unjust taking away of the life of any and protecting and defending the innocent. Question 136, what sins are forbidden in the sixth commandment? Answer, in part, the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are the taking away of life of ourselves or others except in the case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. What else is forbidden? Neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. 
Is abortion murder? Yes. It's not saying, is not saying something about unjust killings a violation of the sixth commandment? Is standing by idly and being silent, is that a violation? Yes. So what else is sinful according to the command? I mean, there, there are those who, who say uh, abortion isn't really that big of a deal. We hear a lot of this in the, the, the progressive Christian world today. Abortion isn't that really, it's not that big a deal. There are other areas that to be pro-life in as well. Why don't we just focus on those things? Right? We're, we, we don't respect life in other areas. Why aren't we focusing on those other things? Why are we just focusing on one thing? Right? And these Christians, they chide other Christians and say, this is the only issue that you really care about. Let me say this as clear as I possibly can. There are a host of areas in which we can violate the sixth commandment. There's no question about that. A host of them. Go back, read the Westminster Larger Questions 135 and 136. Abortion is one of them. It is one of them. And abortion just happens to be killing 106 children per hour. 2,548 per day. In 2020, over 930,000 lives were taken. Over 63 million murders since 1973. So there is one abortion in the United States every 30 seconds. Make no mistake, this is one major issue of our day, and to downplay it is sinful. Third, what else do we learn from our discussion about the Sixth Commandment when it comes to abortion? Well, it doesn't take us very long in our study of the Sixth Commandment to figure out that if we stood before God, we would be guilty. When it comes to the law, we have all fallen short. We have no room to boast in any way, shape, or form. What does that mean? It means that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope for any of us. It also means that for those who have had an abortion, yes, they are guilty of murder. But there's also forgiveness in Jesus Christ for even the most heinous crimes. When it comes to to murder, we think of those who have committed the, the sin of beating and killing Jesus Christ, right? The one who came to seek and save the lost. These thought that they were doing what was right. They they thought they had they justified their actions. They thought that justice was being doled out. They justified their action, and Jesus prayed for them and asked the Father to forgive them because they didn't understand what they were doing. These people killed, they murdered the Son of God. They killed the one that came to save them. And Jesus believed that even those people were capable of being redeemed. That means that there is no sin for which you have committed, even murder, that is beyond forgiveness. This command, like the rest of the law, pushes us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no hope in the law. There's only condemnation. Any serious look to the Sith commandment brings condemnation. There's no hope. You have no reason to boast. No human does. Not even when it comes to this one. What's the answer? Only Jesus Christ. 
Only Jesus Christ can save you. Trust in his work. He's the one that truly never murdered. He never held ill will. He never hated anyone. He never had trouble with forgiveness. He was perfect and he was perfect for you. His perfect obedience is applied to you in faith. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see your your failure. He sees the perfect righteousness and obedience of Jesus Christ clothing you. Your sin, your guilt, every place that you failed when it regards to the law is placed on Jesus Christ and he was nailed to the cross. Dealt with no more. Cast as far as the, the east is from the west into the bottom of the deepest sea. Our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.